My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in two different ways. Number one is you can go on iTunes and leave a review. And number two is you can come to singularityweblog.com and simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Nick Gogarty. Nick is the founder of Thoughtful Capital Group, who has worked with one of the world's largest hedge funds. He was also a chief analyst at StarLab, which was a deep future multidisciplinary science research institute. Most recently, Nick uh, has launched the Solar Coin Foundation, believing that solar power should be more incentivized than it currently is. So, Nick Gogarty, welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Thank you, Nicola. Fantastic. Nick, I'm very excited to have you here. Uh, Great. Because you have an absolutely fascinating uh, personal biography, lots of diversified experience in what what sounds like uh, kind of not incompatible, but very different fields. Right. And you have a very interesting recent project. So let's start uh, one step at a time. Can you please uh, start our conversation by perhaps introducing yourself in your own few words? Uh, sure. I am a person who likes to study big problems um, and then try to build solutions uh, that are highly scalable and highly leveraged to them. Um, and those problems and solutions usually resolve around information, and they fall into three areas. Um, one are social problems. So as an undergrad, I studied cultural anthropology and um, sustainable economic development, um, focusing on West Africa. Um, technology. Uh, which is all about information and how you organize and apply it, becoming ever more important. And then the third one is finance and and economics. And economics is really nothing more than the intersection of the two, where you understand how people um, behave and act um, and structure, and then you abstract it into the quantitative realm. Absolutely fascinating. So you started with anthropology and then kind of went into all those diverse fields. Correct. How did you end up in StartLab? And, and <laughs> by the way, tell us, for those of our viewers who may not be familiar with of that course. institution, of tell course. us a little bit more about... Sure. Uh, StartLab was a um, privately funded European uh, deep future science research institute, and it was modeled on the MIT Media Lab. And so uh, on the board of directors was Nicholas Negroponte, who was the, effectively the founder of the Media Lab, um, and two Nobel laureates. Inside StarLab were 70 to 80 PhD projects, uh, research projects. Now, the mandate for StarLab was a place where 100 years means nothing. And the thinking was a deep future research institute. And so the areas of science included, and my role there was, was chief analyst, to give you perspective, as, as one of the senior management teams. We had science across most of the, um, what you call it, say, disciplines. So there were the physical sciences, there was uh, nanotech, material sciences, um, research into that area. There were the software sciences. So I was overseeing uh, three schools of artificial intelligence. At one point, we had the world's largest artificial brain there, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, software, and then there was biology as well, uh, which involved projects, everything from uh, gathering gene samples, uh, and this is back in 2000, when this was pretty, you know, cutting edge stuff, um, gathering gene samples for what was supposed to have been the largest um, phenotypic database of, of, of uh, gene samples, as well as there's research into protein folding, uh, artificial liver growth, um, 
you name an area of interesting science, we're asking questions. Even time travel. Time travel was on the <laughs> list. Um, and it was a theoretical one. And, and people used to come by and ask um, VCs, especially, and others, and, and private industry in our consortium, okay, what are we doing here? Um, and the interesting thing was, and the response was, time travel is an interesting piece of research. It was purely mathematical. Um, and so it was in the theoretical realm. But the same thing, if we go back, um, let's say, to the 1900s, uh, quantum physics was purely uh, a theoretical thing. It was all equations and, and physicists at the turn of the century. You fast forward to today, and the quantum phenomena found uh, in every transistor um, uh, and, and almost almost most of the applied information tools we use is, you know, a huge, huge part of our economy. So interesting questions were being asked by very, very bright people there. Um, and my role was to help capture those things, um, capture the IP, and then help package them for potential businesses. So very, very um, profoundly interesting area in Brussels. Was so was it fair to say, because you said capture the IP and, and mm -hmm. spin out businesses or something, so was it fair to say that that's kind of an incubator, incubator for future science or something? C correct. I mean, StarLab, um, the nature of it was, it was, you know, a laboratory for deep future research where uh, the researchers were supposed to be the stars, effectively, and it was an incubator. And that was exactly the operating model. It had two models, uh, one or well, three. One was an incubator for new ideas to do spinoffs. The second was a research consortium model, uh, modeled on the MIT Media Lab. And then the third one was doing direct contract research. So research for ASA, the European Space Administration, um, and, and other, let's say, private uh, contract research, all housed um, outside of Brussels and in Barcelona. And StarLab still goes on, um, actually, in Barcelona. Yeah, because uh, I was going to say, so what happened? It sounds like an absolutely fascinating project that we desperately need. The and <laughs> Yes. One of my, one of my learnings, again, I'm, I'm a, uh, I teach at Columbia business school and, and have learned a few things about what things don't work is that what's called fundamental research. There are three types of, of, let's say research. You start with fundamental, uh, then you go to applied and then you go to commercial and each one of those, you take a phenomena and then you scale it out to an end user benefit. Fundamental research, which is what going on at StarLab, um, really understanding fundamental dynamics of a thing to make it all the way out to the commercial path really has to happen at the nation state. And what I mean by that is, if I find something interesting in the lab, the chances that I can then um, make it into a thing, um, maybe one in 10. And then the chances that I can make that thing into a commercial company, a viable incubator company, the commercialization, maybe one in 20, one in 50. And so what ends up happening is, the number of, let's say, bets at the fundamental level required is extremely large. You need a very, very large portfolio of bets. And StarLab um, raised over $90 million, but it wasn't large enough to do it. And even Paul Allen um, at uh, Interval Research in the 90s tried the same thing with $400 million. So my conclusion is that to do fundamental research to make the, to harvest the economic returns on it almost has to happen at either the university or almost nation state level so that you can ask thousands of interesting questions um, that then end up percolating through an economy. So that's that's an absolutely fascinating story at Skylab there, uh, Nick. And and so was the hedge fund experience before or after? And, and how is that even lined together? Right. Um, I'm interested in information and problem solving. And so I have a deep uh, finance background that actually started uh, when I was 17 years old. I started trading yen futures. In college for fun, I had a software startup. 
and was doing research with neural networks and genetic algorithms for bond trading. So the finance has always been there. And finance, again, looking for leverage to problems, there's no, uh, there's almost very, very few areas where you can take information and convert it into value more than in finance and economics. And so I was interested in understanding that. And so my roles in finance have been everything from a, a quantitative foreign exchange dealer for one of the world's largest banks in London to uh, working for a small hedge fund in New York studying renewable energy, um, as well as working with uh, what's arguably the world's largest, uh, one of the world's largest hedge funds um, that's very influential in, in uh, macroeconomic approaches. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And uh-huh. then, uh, so we, you, we know that you have interest in science, mm-hmm. we know that you have interest in data and, and, and in foreign exchange and, and things right. like that in economics and in converting ideas from, let's say, the fundamental to the applied level and then to the commercial level. Correct. Now, now where do we bring the cryptocurrency <laughs> and how do they fit? How did you discover them? And, and Excellent question. Um, in the following way, a, a colleague of mine uh, asked me once at a, at a conference, he was discussing fundamentals of, of a civilization or society. Um, and he said, well, one of the fundamentals is um, energy. And that's, that's basic. Um, and we were talking, it was an economic conference, we were talking about, you know, could you base a currency on energy or electricity? Now, this is a concept that's been around for a long time. Even Henry Ford at the 1920s uh, proposed things. To really do that, you have to understand what a currency is and how it works. Um, and I will tell you this. Um, money is a weird thing. Currency is a weird thing. I worked, with, yeah, I worked with currency, um, you know, started trading yen futures at 17, worked for one of the world's largest banks, um, you know, in my 20s, worked with the world's largest hedge fund, blah, blah, blah. Didn't really understand currency probably until about five years ago um, when I wrote my book. Okay, and I'll get into what that is, but I just want to say that it's, it's a little bit stranger than people think because it's, it's a little bit like electricity. Most people don't know how it works. It just does for them. And just for the record, your book is called The Nature of Value. Correct. The Nature of Value uh, put out by uh, Columbia University Press. So I guess lecture there and it's, you know, it's an Ivy League school, one of the top five or ten um, in the world. And um, yes. So um, the currency thing is the following. My colleague and I came up with a concept of how do you back an energy with currency uh, in 2011, published a white paper, and the thinking was to use something called um, energy forwards and, and let's say, um, forward claims on energy for a typical central bank to buy these things and keep them as assets, the same way a central bank currently uses um, treasury bonds or other, other instruments, debt instruments. The thinking was that as a currency, um, as an economy overheats, or slows down, like we have an economic slowdown, what would happen is the price or the, the price of energy um, would go in the opposite way and act as a stabilizer on the currency. So if the economy gets really, really hot, let's say China is going crazy and it, it's getting overheated and overgrowth, the currency um, and the demand for energy would increase such that it would slow the economy down to a stable way. Mm-hmm. Consequently, if the economy was experiencing a slowdown, um, the cost of energy would potentially decrease. Um, the currency would decrease as well. And this would help make um, things cheaper and then help stimulate the economy. That was the thinking behind it. Okay, that was 2011. Um, one of the things you have to do to perform an experiment like that is have a central bank. Um, didn't have one of those. <laughs> so we fast forward um, to the Bitcoin era. And um, that's an interesting thing because one can release a currency or create something 
um, in the wild. And so put these concepts together and realize that the way a currency works is it functions via um, something in economics which is known as a positive externality, i.e. Um, you're getting more out of something or a different aspect of something um, than would expect. Currency in and of itself, I'm going to go kind of deep here if you don't mind, currency of Absolutely. itself doesn't actually have um, value. And this is a wild concept for people, but it's paper, it's bits of metal, it's it's things. And this is all in my, my book. Um, however, it's a consensus. It's a con exactly right. It's a consensus, and I describe currency as a social protocol. It's one that you and I accept. We speak the same protocol. So I give you a dollar. You know there's a dollar. We agree that that represents some form of value. Uh, you know, $10 and you get three chickens or whatever it is. And it's a network effect. Now, this is a very interesting thing because it begs the question, so where does currency get its value? If I can't redeem it, um, why does it happen to be worth something? Even gold has, uh, it's a metal, but it's not that interesting. Its function is basically lots of poor people dig it out of the ground and then rich people put it back into the ground, into vaults. Yes. Okay. So the currency works in the following way. It's a network. It's almost a network protocol. The interesting thing is, like, let's say, imagine the fax protocol. If more than one person has a fax machine, um, there's value there. If only you and I had a fax machine, that protocol wouldn't be worth much. When millions of people had it, that was worth a lot more. It works the same way with most other protocols, TCP, IP on the internet being the most ubiquitous one uh, globally. So here's what happens. If you take a look at what's called the market cap for Bitcoin or dollars or gold, the value of the entire outstanding stuff and let's say we'll normalize it to dollars. Divide it by the estimate of the number of people who are willing to accept that stuff. So many people would accept a piece of gold if I showed it to them. Many people would accept a dollar. Bitcoin is accepted by, depending on who you ask, between one and a half to two million people. Here's the interesting thing. Every node on that network, every person, is worth between one and $2,000. The value in a currency comes from two... Um, two elements, two what are called economic utility functions. One is speculative. You or someone else is buying it because they think it's going to go up or down. They're selling it, which is less interesting. It's very volatile. And, and the more interesting aspect is called what I call um, a network or a transactional utility function. If I think I can sell this or I can trade it for something else, the degree to which I have choices, the more choices across the network to exchange this thing, the more utility it has. Therefore, the more value it represents. It's not actually value, but it represents that. So the interesting thing with these currencies is there's this external value that gets created by the sheer value of people accepting them. Now, that's a weird tautological thing for a lot of people. What ends up happening is because you have this positive externality, you can do interesting things with it. And so that's where we came up with SolarCoin. Um, launched a currency that is backed or represents, rather, uh, one megawatt hour per unit. Now, one of the challenges in a currency is how do you get it out there? How do you get it out there and grow a network of people who accept it? Um, and they need to have two things. One, they have to assume that it was fairly distributed in an equitable manner. The second thing is everyone's worried about um, hyperinflation or the, that's what kills currency. There's too much of it. Okay, Bitcoin solves that. Um, other currencies, which are, are restricted algorithmically. For our currency, what we decided is let's, instead of using proof of, of work, algorithmic work for Bitcoin, use proof of real world physical work. If you can show me that you produced one megawatt hour of solar energy, we'll give you this coin free. It's a grant. This grows our network. It's interesting in a few ways. The network of participants is pretty much going to stick around for 20 to 30 years. 
if you have panels on your roof and I'm giving you free currency cheaply every time you, you know, can just show, hey, I generated X. This is a reward. Okay. It's a, it's a, solar, it's a solar reward. Um, you're likely to stay with the network. So we grow the network. So that's what is going on with SolarCoin. The amount of rewards that are currently held um, and waiting to be distributed is about $1.8 uh, to $2 billion. That's U.S. dollars. Our largest claimant to date in the U.S. has claimed about $1,200 worth of these things. So as the network grows, um, the value will grow. It'll become very interesting. On top of SolarCoin, and that's a lot of stuff there, um, I'm just going to mention one other project we're just launching. It's called Electric Chain. The electric chain is going to sit on top of the SolarCoin uh, blockchain. And people, blockchain is just a database, really. It's just a database that's a logical versus physical thing. Um, and we're going to try and record as much information from the 7 million solar power generators in the world as possible. Now, this is really interesting for the following reason. It's a public science project we're creating. Every solar panel is effectively a diode or an eye looking up at the sky. And it can tell you um, how much sunlight's coming in. To the degree that there's variance from the expected sunlight, you can make estimates of pollution. You can do other things. So on top of the solar coin, which right now is the world's largest private sector um, solar reward system, we're going to be building um, on top of that what should be the world's largest open source science project for potentially gathering information from these 7 million um, solar energy generators. So we're chasing talks with MIT, um, NASA, Reuters, um, universities, and inverter manufacturers, the people who make the gear, um, because most solar panels already um, push out the data of how much electricity they generate over the internet using IP. So we have two things that are really interesting there. Um, potentially the world's largest solar energy um, incentive system, this reward system, which is designed for 40 years globally. It's already being deployed in 17 countries. And um, the just-to-be-launched um, electricchain.org uh, project, which strives to be the world's largest open um, public science experiment. And so anyone who wants to publish their data to it, um, and we can verify that, gets a solar coin as well. Wow. That's so, absolutely fascinating. So there's many threads I want to grab here, but okay. for the moment, I just want to step back a little bit and ask you, when did you get interested in solar power per se? Um, I got interested in it. You know, um, if you look at any society, um, energy is key construct. Um, you know, it just, it just powers everything. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's okay. Energy is crucial. And the most interesting, um, aspects of energy are uh, sustainable ones. I got interested in solar, um, first when I was at Starlab, because we had one of the research projects back in 2000 was uh, flexible solar cells in our materials sciences lab. I found solar interesting for a few reasons um, as a renewable energy. So we cut out all the other energies in that it's distributed um, and it doesn't have to be large projects. The individual and the eventual rise of, let's say with, with cheap storage, you'll have microgrids, the individual house, et cetera. And so it's a far more interesting net, um, energy strategy and most likely part of the energy future going forward because it's decentralized. If we look at things and the world is becoming more, um, more about networks, overlapping networks, thinking in networks, and tendency towards decentralization, uh, the one energy form that, that is that is solar energy coupled with cheap storage. We're not there yet on the storage. But the cool thing about technologies, and this is every technology, and this is mentioned in my book, is almost all technologies have a Moore's Law. And this is a weird thing. And it works, and this is from the Nature of Value book. 
every um, doubling of the production of units of a thing causes a, a, a curve in production cost. Every time we ship two times more um, watts of solar energy, so I ship 2x more panels, the cost drops 18 to 22%. In energy, that's wild. Wow. Um, now, this phenomena is very strange because it's, it's basically everything has an innovation curve. And this works for beer, um, PVC plastic, <laughs> uh, metals, etc. The more stuff or valuable stuff that gets processed through the economic machine, and we're constantly adding information and innovating, Everything gets cheaper, and you can see these. Um, there are a series of curves published at the Santa Fe Institute in the U.S. There's the performance database curves. It's like 80 or 90 things over 20 or 30 years, and you can see each one has a Moore's law. Um, even in terms of performance, uh, engines, right? So if you if you plot out the engine performance, the compression ratio of an engine from car engine from 1900 to today, it'll have a Moore's law equivalent. Um, I'll give you just a quick story here that's interesting about technology and evolution. Again, this is from the book. Um, in the 1953, the U.S. panicked, right? There was Sputnik. And so some of the, or sorry, before Sputnik, I'm sorry. Before Sputnik, the U.S. had um, what was kind of the precursor to DARPA. And they asked some researchers about human um, modes of transportation and the rate at which they were accelerating. Okay. And so some of the scientists, either the Rand Institute or one of the others, plotted out on a curve how fast we could go from horses to steam steam engines, blah, 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 up to cars. They projected a curve out and they said, well, according to this, within four years, um, we will be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. We'll have enough velocity in mankind. The interesting thing was the curve effectively intersected and predicted Sputnik. Now, they didn't wow. interpret it, but all of a sudden when they went back and looked at the curve, they said, wow. And it roughly lined up within one to two years of uh, when we landed on the moon regards to the velocity. So everything follows these fascinating logarithmic curves, which is a very, very wild concept when you think about it. We're along for a, um, yeah, we're, we're all along in, in this incredible process um, of evolving curves. And I, I can go into more depth on that. Um, you know, there, there are hints about it in the book and, and something called the phi M and et cetera. Yeah, this is all fascinating. And I may come back to it uh, later sure. in our conversation. But sure. in the meantime, I also want to bring uh, a, a paper into our conversation. Correct. In addition to your book, actually provides uh, the theoretical basis, the fundamental theory behind the solar currency, if you will. Correct. Uh, and it's called DECO, an, elect uh, an electricity-backed currency proposal. And I just want to read the thesis here for the Correct. of our audience, which goes like this, quote, the DECO thesis is that electrical energy is the unit form of delivered kilowatt hours. Mm -hmm. A DECO can be a more stable asset for backing a currency than gold or debt. A DECO-backed currency can offer a combination of stable value together with economic utility that neither debt-backed nor gold-backed currency can offer. Oh. Co correct. And, and that thinking was on the following. Um, a debt-backed currency can be potentially um, debased by the overissuance of debt. Um, and that's one thing. Now, debt has an infinite utility. You can spend it for buying anything. Um, but then we look at the other option, which is gold. Gold can't be overissued, so it's stable. But its utility is, is fairly limited to functioning as a currency. I can have it. I can use it as a tradable thing. I can't necessarily direct it to lots of uses the same way I can um, use a debt. Yeah. So basically, 
one solar coin is one mm -hmm. gecko, and or or the equivalent of a, a delivered uh, uh, megawatt hour. Yeah, it's it's roughly equivalent. One of the things that's different about the the, the deco concept or the delivered kilowatt hour is um, the thinking was that that would be a redeemable currency. I.e., that you know this thing actually represented a a um, a redeemable asset that could be claimed. Mm -hmm. With the solar coin, um, the currency is effectively just given away, and so the the sole value, instead of being redeemed, is strictly from the transactional utility. In the same way that Bitcoin currently is worth, let's say, six billion dollars, and if we make an estimate that there are currently, which is an optimistic estimate, three million users who accept it. You end up with each user, um, whether they're a super node on the network like an overstock.com or an individual who's got $10, each user is effectively creating by agreeing to that protocol, the Bitcoin protocol, as money, $2,000 US, $6 billion divided by $3 million. Right. You can do the same math for gold um, with, you know, you say there are 5 billion people, 5 or 6 billion people out of the 7 who may accept gold upon, you know, site, divide it by all the gold outstanding, and you roughly end up with the same figure. You can do the same math for the euro or almost any form of, let's say, currency. Mm -hmm. Now, the Gini index has a, a bit of a problem with that kind of a math there. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe we'll come back to discuss that uh, sure. later. So let me, because you said they're given away. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. How can people get some solar coins then? Um, if you have uh, solar panels on your roof, uh, you just go to the website, uh, solarcoin.org, or one of the partner websites, uh, Global Solar Change or Sol Crypto in Japan. Um, fill in a form, takes five minutes, and um, you download a wallet and you'll get your, um, get your solar coin. Takes about two well, or three weeks. That's fantastic. So basically, anyone with a solar uh, battery on their roof or something like that mm -hmm. can get uh, solar coins. Correct. Now, how do you verify the proof of work or the fact that they have produced that amount of energy, in fact? Correct. Right now, um, what's going on is that is being done on a continuum of, let's say, ease of use versus the size of claim. If you show up and claim a significant amount of these things, um, we'll want very, very robust um, verification. It could be, you know, pictures of the system, some of the nameplate capacity, even a direct link into the inverter meter as they're being generated for a large farm. The individual, um, because there's a lot less uh, um, at stake per se, literally the individual can just send in um, name, address of the facility, and then either a link to their solar um, energy generation report or even an image of um, the inverter. So the thinking is we want to make it as easy as possible right now. The good news is we're talking with partners and data partners so that if you have one of these panels on your roof, you may have a company that installed it and they may monitor it. So we are looking for actively um, these monitoring companies to talk to them to make it automatic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely fantastic. Uh -huh. Now, perhaps now is the time though to bring the point of the Gini index here because okay. um, so I know uh, SolarCoin is, is uh, considerably different than Bitcoin, but some of the sure. problems that people had with, uh, with Bitcoins, uh, mm -hmm. that's like notables, like, for example, Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman or my, one of my favorite sure. science fiction uh, authors, uh, Charlie Strauss. Yeah, he's said, great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, Bitcoin he's should, should uh, die, die. <laughs> burn in a fire or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons that he was quoting was the Gini index, and that's the fact that 
a handful of people control and own the vast majority uh, of Bitcoins today. Now, uh, so I don't want to get distracted about the Bitcoin sure. index, but bringing that kind of a conversation into the solar coin in light of the most recent, uh, uh, for example, uh, solar plant uh, coming online in the next uh, little bit sure. in Morocco, for example, sure. which can obviously put huge claims on solar coins and therefore right. perhaps uh, obtain a large chunk of all the, the, the coins in circulation. How is that going to impact the, the sort of the distribution of money into the system? Correct. The distribution, I mean, I'll, I'll unpack some of the issues. First of all, the, the Gini coefficient, which is effectively plotting the um, distribution of holders against the relative amounts held. Um, to the degree that you are one on one of the extremes of the Gini coefficient, which runs from zero to one, zero being everyone is equal, uh, one being everything held by an individual, neither of those extremes is functional um, for an economy. Neither one represents, let's say, how nature um, works or distributes resources very effectively. What's typically found in macroeconomics is that there are Gini coefficients that are um, closer and the more egalitarian, uh, you typically have more stable, robust economies. You also have, um, this will sound strange, happier people living there <laughs> um, and functional. So you and less violence-prone societies. Correct. And so you know, I don't want to get deep into the, the issue of, of um, inequity or inequality, but what you do find is, let's just say this, some of the um, Scandinavian countries have very uh, low Gini coefficients and extremely high quality of life. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's an area that I think is um, important for the debate in terms of framing it around what's it all about. It's less about inequality and it's more about is, is a society functioning well for everyone. It just happens that a more equal society gets that result. And so that's very important. Absolutely. In SolarCoin, um, first of all, we, we, don't, uh, we don't really address that directly. And I'll, I'll explain how we, we kind of try to, but um, we can't social engineer things too much. The foundation, the SolarCoin Foundation's goal is maintain parity. One megawatt circulation relative to one megawatt hour distributed. To that end, the following happens. Um, if a retail individual signs up, great, they get their coins. If a large farm like this institution in Morocco signs up, um, there have been discussions of putting a tax of potentially 10% on those coins and then using it for the distribution and development of the currency itself. Um, but it's got to be very simple and very transparent. Um, so that's, that's how we're trying to resolve that. It will not, and SolarCoin in and of itself, um, will not resolve the issues of uh, monetary or cultural um, iniquity. Um, its mandate is strictly to incentivize solar energy. Now, I will, I will explain this, though. The reason we looked at, and there was deep research into other renewables, um, wind, uh, geothermal, uh, even wave, et cetera, et cetera, nuclear, if you look at all these forms of energy, Solar is the most distributed. You know, there's 7 million people out there. If this was Windcoin, uh, you know, you'd have a handful of large financial institutions um, that would get coins and you'd have a network of, you know, 200 participants. Um, so we're looking at distributing this more. The other thing I can say is that the 7 million participants today, um, the solar industry is growing at 20 to 30% a year. Um, costs are on this cost performance curve uh, ratio I mentioned earlier. So what will happen is 
in 10 years, you might have 70, 80, 100 million people participating um, to the degree that they all require a consumed amount of energy. And as that energy gets more and more distributed, as it gets cheaper for the individual versus a central network, um, you'll probably have a, a flattening of our effective Gini coefficient. Um, but that's speculation. Long, yeah. long answer to your question. <laughs> No, and it's a, it's a great answer. And, and in defense of solar coin, I have to say that in contrast to Bitcoin, I, I can be yeah. a lot more sympathetic here with uh, such a k- kind of distribution. The reason being is that the bottom line is here that uh, we have the production of solar energy. Correct. It, 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 means, it means it fulfills its purpose and, and that's a benefit to the society in general without the negative externality associated with the other form of energy, such well, as coal or, or nuclear, et cetera. Correct. And to juxtapose us um, with Bitcoin, one of Charlie Strauss's critiques and many critiques is Bitcoin is a huge um, carbon generator. There's some math on our site that shows the transaction, if Bitcoin is at full transaction capacity, each transaction on the Bitcoin network takes 119 kilowatt hours. Now that's um, that's a that's a huge amount of energy, um, and it's effectively useless. Um, a lot of people confuse the proof of work that's done for the consensus, and they confuse it with you know actually doing something productive. It's actually a sunk cost. Um, SolarCoin just moved uh, four or five months ago to a new algorithm called a proof of stake, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It is two to three hundred times more efficient. And so we estimate that when our network should it reach the same size as Bitcoin's, let's say one and a half, two million people, um, you will be able to process a transaction instead of at a hundred. Uh, kilowatt hours, which is, let's say, Bitcoins, at less than um, 0.1 kilowatt hours with SolarCoin. So it's a green currency that is designed um, from the ground up to be uh, distributed um, and use its externalities to, uh, you know, stimulate green energy production. Very good. I like it very much. So it works on both ends of the equation. On the one end, it diminishes energy consumption. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it incentivizes clean energy production. C- correct. And to put that energy consumption of Bitcoin into um, perspective, if you imagine the, the current Bitcoin mining reward, you may hear about these miners, right? Yeah. Currently, the rewards every year are worth about, let's say, $400 million. Okay. That means people are most likely willing to spend up to $400 million to get those rewards. There's a marginal cost yeah. benefit, right? Yeah. Well, the, the mix of that uh, cost is going to be a mix of electricity to do the mining and then chips, ASIC chips and all the rest. Well, to produce an ASIC chip takes energy as well. There's embedded energy and information in this thing. So effectively, you have $400 million worth of information chasing, um, you know, to co- competing to keep this network up in, in what's called a red queen race. Nobody really wins. The network, you know, adjusts. And, and so it's always, it's the same solution. You're just resolving a block. It just gets harder or less hard. Um, so it's $400 million worth of, of energy, if you will, combined in the uh, embedded energy in an ASIC or a produced thing and the electricity um, that's not doing much for anybody. You know, it's, yeah. it's carbon in the air. In, the, in the way, that sense, it's like it's like gold. It's it's really yes. useless in its own. Correct. The the way gold works is if you view the the gold currency as a network, and and effectively every node on the network is you know participating in the currency. If you go out and mine gold, what you're doing is effectively you're spending energy to okay. buy your way into the network. The same way with Bitcoin, you're spending energy to buy your way into the network. It works the exact opposite with SolarCoin. You generate 
um, solar electricity, you get to join the network. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I like SolarCoin so much, and which I, I which is why I wanted to bring you here to, to Great. tell us about all those differences. So now, uh, let me ask you about another difference. Now here, uh, most recently uh, there were a lot of waves made by an article by Mike Hearn called yep. "Resolution of the Bitcoin Experiment," where he said that basically Bitcoin was an experiment, and in his opinion, right. it has failed. And and one of the reasons that he quotes is the, the the fact that the packet size has almost has almost reached its ultimate limit or a, approximately. So let me ask you: How is the packet size of solar coin similar or different than the? I think it's a one megabyte limit on. Coin. Correct. I'm, I'm going to um, un- unpack your statement in a few levels. First of all, I'll start with that experiment. Almost everything is is. Um, uh, an experiment. And, 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 and this is true. Even there's a fantastic book I'd recommend to your readers called The Half-Life of Facts. I know the author. Every fact, scientific fact, has a half-life. In physics, it's 13 years. The reason being our measurements get better or the fact gets overturned. In the science of economics, the half-life of facts is about three years. It's a sloppy field. So physics is the most robust. So we live in a hypothesis-driven world. Everything's going to fail, you know, eventually or be disproved by a better model of understanding. I go now to Bitcoin, we say, all right, that was an experiment. So it begs the question of what was the experiment? Um, If the experiment was to create value with a network, okay, that's worked. Um, If it was to topple or replace currencies, as some people think the experiment was, no, um, you just created a new thing. Um, I'm now going to go into the the second issue of uh, blockchain size. The other interesting aspect of Bitcoin as an experiment is the underlying tech, the blockchain, has spawned um, solutions and successors, right? Anyone can launch another chain and say, look, I've got Litecoin, I've got Megabitcoin or whatever, and they can put their blocks at whatever size they want. So um, has Bitcoin failed? The thing is, there are lots of solutions um, to the problem. And I'm not going to get into the technical um, aspects of some of them because, frankly, they're they're, um, either more technical and Others can do better justice than, but whether it's a side chain, an off-chain transaction that gets resolved, there are ways of resolving um, the issue. Uh, so the interesting, uh, yeah, Mike did say that there are ways of resolving the issue, but he said the incentives right now is that the few miners correct uh, are disin- disincentivized to to adopt those changes. One Co- and two, they have a disproportionate amount of power, so they can actually block the chain. Co- correct, like fifty percent of the mining is is done in China, and there are probably a couple of groups. And this happens in networks where there's a convergence of power, um, and effectively to a centralized source. And this is one of Bitcoin's challenges: is uh, the reward mechanism, it, originally it was very, very distributed, right? Anybody with a PC could try and mine these things. Eventually, yeah. you had only the people who had... Now it's the, impossible. The, exactly. The, you have to have the cheapest power because it's, it's um, economies of scale. Yeah. And so, all of a sudden, now that, that limits Bitcoin for a few reasons. The network can't grow. In essence, the number of people claiming rewards um, shrinks. Smaller and smaller and smaller. Smaller and smaller. So then um, you just have to have people uh, you know, on the network who buy in for other reasons, substitute currency. The cool thing with SolarCoin is um, the network grows. As the value of the currency grows, it becomes a greater incentive for more people to claim it and grow the network. It's, it's something we call the autocatalytic effect. We're assuming that the network goes autocatalytic in terms of a self-perpetuating reaction, if you will, at about the $1 price point. That's the price point of the coin where 
the average person with something on the roof um, says, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a try for 20 bucks, 20 or $30 US or 20 or 30 euros. That auto catalytic point in terms of our network theory of money is roughly between 20 to 50,000 users. Mm-hmm. So, and what's the, the size of the packet you're using there? The packet, I'm going to go back, sorry. <laughs> thank you for keeping on question. Much Welcome. appreciated. Um, we, uh, I believe we currently have the one megabyte packet. Now, that's a packet limit, a max limit. Right now, there are very few transactions going across. And I'm going to explain. Um, so it's uh, the same size as Bitcoin. The same blockchain. size as Bitcoin, but there's one distinct difference. Um, we resolve a block every 10 minutes. So effectively, we have 10 times the capacity of Bitcoin. Bitcoin's theoretical capacity is seven transactions a second. Our theoretical transaction capacity would be 70 transactions per second. So perhaps that's going to give you, let's say, 10 times longer before you reach the point of saturation. <laughs> then well, also, the other thing is, um, to the degree that there are these other... Um, solutions out there, we can also increase the, uh, the size, the block size. And we're actually looking at doing a hard fork. And in the near future, because we have a small network, it's a fairly easy thing to do. And probably increasing it by a factor of five. Yeah, so, that was my point. That, that's exactly my point. Co- correct. And so, and the reason we can do that is because the interests of the people are all aligned. The Bitcoin problem is, is all of a sudden you have technology um, that's misaligned with a group of social interests and so it's getting stuck. Now, you actually have in Bitcoin, you have uh, basically relativistic gain. You have yes, exactly. Of, uh, instead of uh, Absolute uh, a growing pie, you have a, a kind of a... Uh, Oh my God! Prisoner's dilemma, kind of. Yeah, well, it's 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 kind of a prisoner's dilemma. The other uh, word or phrasing it's given in um, in ecology and the environment is called the red queen race. Yeah, Everyone yeah. has to run faster, but they're still staying the same. You use the correct term. It's a relative race. Everyone throws more resources to mine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but the end result is pretty much the same. The network is resolving blocks and moving on. Um, yeah, and it's about relative gains. It's about those few miners who want to consolidate and not risk in any way their already established position. Correct. Control versus the majority of the rest of the Bitcoin users who have the incentives to actually keep growing. Correct. And if we escalate up to thinking about innovation as um, an evolving system, the rule is always the following. It's about um, flow and dynamics of flow and complexity. Innovation, evolution, always end runs, obstructions. So if Bitcoin gets stuck, there will be a substitute. There will be some innovation that will just ignore and move on. That won't mean that Bitcoin dies. It just means that something will most likely be bigger or take the opportunity to do it right, whether that's another coin, another tech, um, who knows. Yeah, and 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 exactly it would just the next thing would just adopt the successful features of bitcoin and and drop the the the, the failure uh, features and, uh that's why actually maybe, here, maybe two years ago i wrote an article called uh, the the financial singularity is here where <laughs> i argued that uh i don't know if bitcoin the money will be successful or not but i think that the bitcoin technology uh, th- that's to say the blockchain behind is is here to stay in one form or another. De- definitely. The, the blockchain tech is profoundly interesting. Um, you know, for those who are deep into the philosophical aspects of computation, you've got something that only exists as a, a logical construct and not a physical one, which is very profound. And then obviously you have Ethereum where effectively you're creating 
really a database of stored procedures, but kind of a computer um, that, again, doesn't exist anywhere physically because it's distributed, but it's a logical construct of consensus, which is a very, very wild concept, and a machine like the internet that can't be shut down um, or most likely won't be. Yeah, actually, uh, th there's a few interesting uh, sort of uh, altcoins or, or mm -hmm. offshoots of the Bitcoin and blockchain technology. And, and the two most interesting to me so far that I'm aware of are Ethereum. And I've mm -hmm. interviewed Vitalik Buterin. And, and oh, yeah, brilliant guy. With you. Yeah, Vitalik is a, is a brilliant kid. I, I, I'm just yeah. like, fascinated. I've met him a few times and he's just... Yeah. We're in talks with them to help with the electric chain project. So um, SolarCoin may be the data layer, but there'll be lots of needs for um, smarts on top for people to report data. So we're, we're, we're chasing Ethereum and, and a few others um, to help that project because it's, it's global open science. But keep yeah. going. Yeah, Absolutely. Fantastic. So what was the other altcoin you're interested in, Nicola? Uh, well, uh, Ether and, and and solar, right? Okay. <laughs> because you know, Ether is the the Ethereum coin. Yeah, exactly. Right. So Ether and, and the SLR is is the yep. solar coin. Now, tell us a little bit uh, more again about the rate of adoption. You said you still have a small network, and which is why I kind of suggested that perhaps now is the time to consider those problems because it's easier to make the changes of the pack size, etc. Correct. But how small or how big is it now? We are talking a tiny network. We probably have between three to 500 users. And that's interesting. We've been in beta, and the, the phasing of the technology is, um, has been the following. First, get the technology... Um, robust, figure out the core mechanics. 2016, we launched in 2014. 2016 is the year of scale. So we've gone out to our affiliates in various countries, and we're going to start partnering with um, inverter manufacturers, uh, large developers. And so we're looking at potentially growing the network. Our goal is, um, you know, probably 100, 100x. Um, but uh, I will just say this, we have connections to very, very interesting people in, let's say, you know, Reuters Energy, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, a lot of high-end groups. So once we get the infrastructure ready for claimants to be processed in an automated way, which will happen in a month or two, we'll be growing the network um, many orders of magnitude. So the base and the platform um, is in place. Um, and you know, that will probably impact price, um, would be my guess, but I'll let people come to the conclusion on their own. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine Elon Musk uh, and solar city would be some of the people you'd be talking to. Uh, we were just talking to someone who is one degree of separation away from him. So, you know, to the degree that he would be interested in that. And, and this is a, uh, an individual who may be leading our electric chain initiative. Um, he's one group. The reality is the auto catalytic inflection point. We need 10 to, again, 20 to 50,000 um, users. SolarCity currently has 200,000 users, and they're targeting 900,000. So um, obviously, it would be a huge um, step change function in the network um, and interesting. I, I think we need to grow to get there, but would love to start those conversations. <laughs> Yeah, sounds sounds absolutely fascinating. I wish you good luck. Maybe Thank I you. can throw in uh, uh, a request too. Is is uh, if you get to Elon, if you could just mention that I've been trying to get him on my show for the last couple of years. Thank you very much. <laughs> no problems. If 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 we get the time with him, uh, sure. <laughs> and, and and he can watch this fascinating interview with you as as one of many to prove that his time will be well. Well, there we go. There we go. <laughs> 
Anyway, okay. So uh, the other kind of interesting uh, little mm-hmm. detail is that uh, the smallest unit uh, of solar co- coin is called the photon. Exactly. I, one of our this is the great thing is about open community is and and in a, a community that's less focused on money and more on social good and solar energies. They're very fun and creative. Uh, and so one of our community members came up with that. So we're the the photon versus the Satoshi. <laughs> Now, uh, tell us, uh, we've covered sort of the currency and and Mm -hmm. sort of the the mechanics behind it. Perhaps now is the time to tell us a little more about uh, the Solar Coin Foundation and how does it fit within the bigger picture? The Solar Coin Foundation is is, um, a little bit like the Bitcoin Foundation, but hopefully more functional. Um, I hope so. It's stable. It has only one mandate, and all it does is try to... um, maintain the integrity of the one megawatt hour to one SLR issuance rate. Um, it functions a bit like a, um, a bit like a central bank in that it, it signals what it thinks, let's say the interest rate policy is, it signals what it thinks the wallet should be. Obviously as an open source project, if people launch different versions, et cetera. So it's really just a messaging platform um, and it tries to maintain the integrity of the verification process with our affiliates. So it's meant to be very um, light and you know, it's a node on, let's say, the network of users. Right now, the SolarCoin Foundation looks like this uh, big, big thing, but that's because we have a small network. Ideally, the affiliates and the participants and all the rest um, become bigger and more important than the foundation's role. The foundation, again, like a central bank, doesn't advertise, doesn't try to push price up, doesn't do anything. It's, it's very quiet, and its whole message is we want the blockchain to be stable, and we want um, good user experience. We want, you know, to the degree we control it, um, people involved to be operating uh, legally and within the regulatory frameworks of their respective countries. And, um, you know, we try to signal that. We want good actors. Mm-hmm. 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 Excellent. Okay. So I think we covered pretty much the basics uh, uh, of, of solar coin. Sure. Um, give us just before we move on to some other topics, give us what's the best place for people to go and uh, search for more information on that topic. Sure. Sure. They can go to um, uh, solarcoin.org, uh, all one word. Um, they can go to solarchange.co. Um, or they can go to Soul Crypto. This is our, our Japanese um, affiliate, S O L uh, Crypto, C R Y P T O dot com. Excellent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, um, let me ask you for uh, to sort of bring our conversation in a few other realms here. Sure. Because, I, uh, as I said, you have a fascinating background, and I want to get your opinion here. Okay. Just one interesting thing is what's your take generally on uh, nuclear power? And in general, and perhaps you can even comment yeah. most recently on the uh, brand new sort of revelation for a leak at uh, Indian Point uh, sure. a couple of days ago. Sure, sure. Um, obviously, that's highly local, um, uh, so it, it is topical. Um, nuclear power is very, very uh, interesting. Interesting in that it's it's clean, etc. My only uh, concerns about it are um, risk and how the safety engineering is done. Um, and I have an article on my blog, which is about the Indian Point Reactor. And basically, um, I've done a lot of work with risk, right? I've, I've done risk analysis for trillion-dollar banks. Blah, blah, blah. I testified in front of the U.S. Senate as a, as a Y2K risk expert, world's largest technology expert. I was, you know, one of seven guys. The other guys were from the World Bank, the DOD, CIA, blah, 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 State Department. Okay, so I'm, I'm a risk guy, and I'm a big risk guy, big-picture risk guy. I look at nuclear, and I think a lot of the safety engineering isn't done um, very effectively. 
that's my biggest concern with it. Um, it's not a bias. Uh, you know, the science is the science. Um, I'm worried more about how the safety engineering and, and that philosophy is done. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. This is from my blog article. Um, if I design something with a one in a hundred thousand year, um, failure rate, a lot of people feel safe or comfortable with that. It's one in one in a hundred thousand. If, however, I acknowledge the fact that that thing is going to be in operation for, uh, let's say, 100 years, then all of a sudden I have a one in a thousand chance of that thing going wrong. That's the fundamental problem that's used or the fundamental flaw in designing these systems is the way they're measuring safety is on an annual basis as opposed to the lifetime of the operation of the thing. It's like uh, the easy example I give to people is if you go buy a house on the river, and the guy says, hey, I'll sell you the house. It lives on a floodplain. And there's a chance of a flood, you know, once in 100 years. So you look over at your wife and, you know, and say, hey, once in 100 years, let's take the chance. Your wife looks back and says, well, we're going to live here for 30 years. And that's three out of 10. You're not so comfortable. So it's important to think in that risk. And I've given lectures um, at NASA and the Singularity University, actually, on, um, on measuring risk correctly in, in natural systems. So that's my bias. That's my take on, on nuclear. It's interesting, but the safety engineering needs to be more robust um, and thought. Yeah, it would seem so, especially in uh, light of the revelations that perhaps the Fukushima disaster was even worse than uh, than the, anything uh, we, we've had beforehand. Correct. I mean, I, I don't know the exact nature of, of the failures or the exact nature of the impact. And that'll be, you know, the full thing will probably be known years out, but um, you know, it, was, it was a huge disaster. Again, one of the reasons that, you know, from a purely a security perspective, um, light distributed decentralized forms of energy, light distributed systems of all kinds work from a pure security engineering or risk engineering. The more centralized the thing is, the more tightly coupled the elements, um, the more brittle and failure prone, because if there's a single failure, it cascades out. So you want a light distributed network of things, whatever it is whether it's a banking system or uh, an energy system. Right. Very good point. Yes, mm. absolutely. Now, uh, let me ask you this, though. Mm-hmm. What kind of car do you drive? <laughs> After that safety lecture, you like this. I drive an old Volvo. <laughs> Volvo really? station wagon. I have a, I have a young daughter, um, and so we have two Volvo station wagons. <laughs> that's, that's very fascinating. <laughs> I bet it has something to do with your risk assessment. Safety, I'm a safety-conscious uh, guy. You know, th- those are my priorities. First, get there safe, do whatever. Then you can do whatever you want. But think about things in advance. Wow, very interesting. Okay. Now, another question, though, is um, what's your take? Uh, are, are you meat-eater? Yeah. You are? Yeah. Uh, and, and I acknowledge that has terrible environmental impact and I can't don't know about the health aspects. So, <laughs> but what's your question? And Nicole, I interrupted. The question is this though, mm. you have a very ethical and noble goal by releasing solar coin. That's right. to say incentivize the production of clean uh, energy right. at a sort of diminishing cost mm-hmm. and at zero to very low negative externalities, be it to mm-hmm. environment, be it to anything else. And that's, of course, going to have positive effect on uh, global warming. Hopefully. Now, the, the, here's the connection, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UN came with a report that uh, transportation and energy costs are somewhere maybe around, if I remember, in the 18% of, of all the, the causes uh, uh, adding up to... Um, 
global warming. Okay. And maybe 50 or more than maybe 51% are related to agricultural sector and especially to meat production. Correct. Methane releases have a very, very high impact as, right. as a, a, a climate, a warming gas, correct? So the, 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 the sort of the, the bumper uh, line for that is that, you know, a, a, a vegan or a vegetarian driving a Hummer is, is much uh, less uh, negatively impacting the right. environment than a meat eater with a bicycle. Right. Right. That, that could be very true. Yeah. So yeah, and especially since uh, and and they uh, there's a there's even a documentary on the topic recently that I watched, uh, and I haven't done the background checks on it yet. Mm-hmm. Conspiracy, it's kind of getting to be very popular. <laughs> okay, uh, where they said that even if we convert all the energy on the planet, given the rates of increase in meat consumption and the uh, yeah. associated requirements of uh, land and, and you know. Uh, the exhaustion of the Amazon forest, whether directly to raise cattle or to raise food for cattle, such as soy and corn and stuff, mm-hmm. we are still going to be much worse off than before <laughs> if we continue on our obsession with meat. And the other point is that, of course, the developing world, as they're becoming more and more developed, they develop a taste for meat. So China is eating more meat than ever before. Correct. So is India and so is everyone else. As they're getting richer, they want to consume more meat. Correct. The, 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 the meat protein consumption scales probably proportionally uh, with GDP um, directly. And, and so you can assume that relationship will hold. You know, solving that problem um, or let's say mitigating it, um, you could try it with a carbon tax to, to price things relative to their externalities. If we assume there's a negative externality associated with meat, um, that's a potential solution. Um, the other solutions may be, and it, it sounds extremely futuristic, but who knows, um, you know, alternative forms of, of uh, meat. 3D printed meat. Potentially, yeah. I mean, I've uh, interviewed Dr. Gabor Forgatch uh, on gotcha. from Organovo. Correct. And it sounds um, extremely theoretical and out there, but um, it's not that far away. I mean, the research we were doing at StarLab, one of the things we were looking at was um, how do you grow an artificial liver? And a liver is a very complicated structure with multiple, the structure of the hepatic cells, et cetera, defines its function. Growing that or growing other organs or muscle tissue um, could be a potential solution. And I don't know what the trajectory on that technology is, but that might be there. I mean, I acknowledge, I acknowledge what you're saying about the, the potential problem and, and the degree that, you know, economics will drive, you know, you have these two forces, economics and technology um, will drive what happens. Yeah, and, and let me just share with you sort of my evolution on that per se. Okay. So I totally hope, uh, as you are, that 3D printed meat will be here sooner rather than later. My concern is whether it's going to be here on time. And then as per meat consumption specifically, I eat meat myself, but I've started decreasing it tremendously in the mm-hmm. last, uh, couple of months. And I'm going mm-hmm. to start trying having meat once a week or something like that. Right. Uh, and and th- the reasoning behind is twofold. So one is like ethically speaking, and, and you know, my blog is not about technology. My blog is actually about ethics. Technology okay. is just a context. Okay. Technology is amoral, but the correct we make with it, make it either uh, moral or immoral. Correct. Uh, and so uh, I, I have problems, personally speaking, with uh, sort of the, 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 the farming industry, the, the industrialization of meat production and stuff like that okay. on one hand, and the ethical treatment of those living organisms which are right. capable of suffering 
uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, purely selfishly, the negative impact of that industry on the planet and therefore on me and, and mm-hmm. our species. Mm-hmm. So, and and I, I, th- that's kind of the, the motivation for me to diminish meat consumption mm-hmm. as much as possible. Uh, now, but, and that kind of also connects to a point that you brought about carbon tax, uh, which I, is kind of a direction I wanted sure. to bring our conversation a little bit. Sure. Uh, not necessarily with respect to carbon tax, but what some people have called true cost economics. Correct. Familiar with the, and there's actually true cost carbon, which is the, but yes. Exactly. So, so one of the easiest examples that kind of blows my mind is that if you go and buy a, 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 a water bottle mm-hmm. from a convenience store, to hold uh, that one, let's say, unit of, of, of water into the bottle, right. you must use seven or eight units of water to hold one unit of water in the production of that plastic bottle itself. Correct. The, the energy material intensity um, uh, behind a lot of things is, is, is um, profoundly surprising. The best way to make an estimate of the carbon intensity or energy intensity of any thing is to look at its price. And this is very interesting. I'm going to go there. This, is, this, uh, this floors a lot of people. If I... Um, uh, Wired did a good magazine on on uh, lithium battery cars, etc. If I want to try to understand the carbon footprint of a car, one of the easiest ways to do it is is just to look at the price of the components. So even if I have a uh, electric car, the early ones they're getting better all the time, so they're going to make a lot more sense. But the early ones, they were really really expensive. And on the one hand, you felt good about the electric car. What you were effectively doing was you were consuming a huge amount of energy, which showed up in the price to um, mine lithium. Now it's getting more efficient and better. And so the cars on the production curve will become, uh, let's say, sensible and carbon positive. Um, But the original ones were terrible. And so one way to understand the, uh, let's say, the material impact or the energy impact of anything, uh, the the easiest way to do is look at the price or the cost of it. And that will tell you about its its, um, intensity. So you look at the cost of bottled water, you know, it's more than gasoline these days. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy thing, right? I mean, uh, you know, but the, concern, the concern here is that it does, the, the, the actual nominal cost that you pay in the store does not reflect the Correct. actual damage on the environment because you have hidden costs that you don't pay for. Correct. These are the the externalities. And this is one of the, um, I'm actually working on a project, a fintech startup um, that's working on making it easier for people to invest in because they're aware of these externalities, because this is where economics fails. I mean, you have, you know, capitalism, it's great for innovation, blah, blah, blah. How it's managed in terms of um, equity and equitable distributions of outcomes is, is a question, a large one. And then the other thing is, it fails. Capitalism has a lot of information failures. The tragedy of the commons being the classic one where I create an externality, a risk, a cost, an impact that's borne by others. And I look at that and I say it's an information failure. So the question is, how do we solve that? You either solve it with sending information back um, by increasing the price to reflect the externalities um, or regulation that says, okay, this thing can or can't happen. So we've taken a thing, we've assigned it you know, a, a, a label that says this doesn't work. So you sign it information that it's a, a good or a bad thing. Um, so agreed, um, framing the problem as externalities, acknowledging them, and then starting to quantify them will help first people make conscious choices. And then if there are policy decisions to be made, um, make them. 
It's a very tough world, though, because the externalities are often, um, they're either spread out geographically, so they're tough to measure over space, and then time, right? Climate change is a classic worst-case scenario where the impact is spread out decades in the future and then across to everyone, and so very few people feel they own the problem. Um, these are interesting challenges to me. I mean, they, they are the challenges, you know, of our age and, and across multiple dimensions. So climate change will be one. Uh, biodiversity and some of the things that will be in genetic technology will be another one. Um, that'll be in the future. The concepts of privacy um, for individuals and individual data and even data security. Um, these are things that as we become more and more digital um, will become uh, major issues. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there, but I thought <laughs> it's my framework. Uh, no, no, I totally agree with you. But so the question then is, yeah. can capitalism provide the framework to resolve those problems? Or is it the case, as Einstein yeah. said, that the kind of thinking that got you into a problem cannot be the kind of thinking that takes you out of it? So, I, I, I think, um, I write in my book, actually, that on one extreme, if you have pure capitalism, you end up having... Um, an extreme failed state. If you have pure capitalism, it's only those who have the most power that control things. And so people who say, I'm an extreme libertarian. The winner libertarian. takes it all. The winner takes it all. And ultimately, if there are no laws, if there isn't regulation, you know, do you have pure capitalism in, um, you know, let's say, Somalia or South Sudan, where you have a failed state? Absolutely. It's pure power and it's pure capitalism. So what people are really, sorry about that. Um, what people really want is regulated capitalism because many of the information failures in capitalism or the concepts of a more equitable society require that um, it's not driven by pure absolute power or um, one individual's needs versus the society. So pure capitalism won't solve it. Um, Well-regulated capitalism that has the space to innovate will. So you don't want a state actor that controls and dominates anything so you don't get the wonders of innovation and incentives on the one extreme. But on the other hand, you can't have um, the Wild West because you'll get abuses of power. So navigating that is, is literally every country's and every polity's um, constant debate. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and going back to your previous example, I think the Scandinavian countries have the best track record so far on being able well, to... They they've they've show up very well on a lot of metrics, right? If you look at um, if you ever look at the site Nation Master, which uh, I would recommend people take a look at, you can compare countries on um, hedonics, happiness, quality of life, life expectancy, many many metrics of what people call what's a su successful society, and you'll see that their organizational principles and systems seem to provide that, and for the long run. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. You think that. Uh uh, capitalism is here to stay, in other words. Or Inevitably, because it's, if I look at it, it's, it's an adaptive learning. If, if we look at an economy, there's nothing more than how people just determine how to do two things, um, share resources mm -hmm. and innovate and adapt. Mm -hmm. um, capitalism is nothing more than a way of trying to figure out and resolve that. So it, it's going to exist, whether it's two guys trading shells on an island um, to try to optimize their own individual outcomes you know, or global multinationals. The question is, um, you know, how is it regulated and how is it managed? Mm -hmm. So that there aren't, um, you want to minimize externalities so that there's good actors. You need regulations, whether it's for safety or for some other things. And how do you minimize, um, you know, abuses of power? Um, and every society has to resolve that on their own. So capitalism isn't going anywhere. I think it'll be here, you know, it's almost always been here in one form or another. Even societies that said they weren't 
capitalistic have inherently at some part, wherever they are on a spectrum that I mentioned earlier, um, have always had, you know, feedback, innovation, and some form of reward mechanism um, for that innovation or getting things done. It defined in that way, I can totally agree with you. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Even, even in, in a situation like me growing up in communist Bulgaria, there were those elements there. Absolutely. Correct. There's at least somebody who's hustling, right? To yeah. do something or make a shortcut because a purely hierarchical architected system is too brittle. Um, if it's too centralized, it's too brittle. And so there's always evolution at the edges or adaptation or somebody doing something. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So maybe, uh, and that's a very hard thing to ask, but can you give us like the scoop on what's your take on the technological singularity in general and AI sure. in particular? In, in I, I think, um, well, I'm going to go uh, meta on you. Uh, one of the most interesting places to look for that uh, information is accelerating.org. Um, they have a very interesting take. The most um, profound uh, concepts of, let's say, evolution and trajectory for things is a philosophy put forth by uh, Eric J. Chason in his book, Cosmic Evolution. And I will also recommend the book, Into the Cool, um, by um, oh, Dorian Sagan, who is, um, is Dorian Sagan, who is Carl Sagan's son. Now, those books explain the trajectory of evolution um, across domains. When I say across domains, um, there's geographic, um, biological, uh, ecological, uh, or let's say um, economy, us, and then post-economic. Um, so yes, the singularity will be here. Chason has a great paper that he defines, um, there have already been five or six singularities in terms of points of inflection point where evolution crossed a threshold. The move from biology, or I'm sorry, pure, let's say, um, geology, into biology, biology then evolving into cultural, techno-social culture we have, and then um, the technical culture. And my argument is um, the singularity is already here in the fact that every step change across an, um, an ecological domain, let's say the biological to the economic to the post-economic where the singularity lives, Every step change sees uh, symbiosis as the evolution points, and symbiosis means dependency on a thing. So we can't shut down our machines right now and survive. No urban city could survive if you shut down the internet and the energy infrastructure behind it. So we're already in the singularity. Our dependence on technology is such that we are already um, symbiotic and co-symbiotic with our technology. The degree to which the technology becomes um, self-directed is emerging faster and faster. And whether that's your car, I mean, one, one great debate I think you should have is um, the ethics, programming ethics into machines. Driverless cars will have to do that, right? You have a driverless car and you're going to have the, what they call the, the thrown switch uh, problem. You're going to hit one person or you're going to save five people. You have to make a choice. Every driverless car is going to have ethics programmed into it. That's interesting. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes. And you gave us a, a few other very interesting topics of uh, future interviews and people, by the way, which I sure. appreciate very much. Sure. So, Nick, uh, the second last question I always ask is, where can people find more about you personally and your work? Uh, um, check out the website, I guess, um, The Nature of Value, read that book. Um, or they could go to my website. I don't post much there. Um, but gogerty.com, which is my last name, um, there's some thinking on Ethereum, uh, Ether, the singularity, uh, a concept called dead capital, which is very interesting opportunity for development globally. Um, 
talk about that in another lecture. Um, and that talks about a failure of, of organizational capitalism. It's like a $9 trillion um, opportunity. Um, that's probably about it. Yeah, and I can vouch. Uh, I've been to all those places and read most of those things. Okay. You do cover a variety of interesting topics, diverse topics, yeah. and I recommend people check that out very much. So. Thank you. So, Nick, we covered a whole slew, a whole spectrum of topics today. Right. What, in your opinion, is the best way to wrap up our conversation? What's the sort of parting message you want to send us with? I think the parting message is um, think in networks and think adaptation. Um, recognize that everything has a trajectory um, that it's on, whatever static. It's on an improving, fast-moving trajectory. Um, and so try to understand your world from where internet networks are going to intersect um, and where technology's trajectories are or are headed, I guess, because everything's getting faster. Think in networks and think in adaptation. I like that very much. <laughs> Nick Gogarty, thank you very much for being with us today. All right. Thank you, Nicola. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. Singularity.